Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Coming up next is my conversation with writer and visual artist Molly Crabapple about the book she wrote with Syrian journalist Marwan Hisham called Brothers of the Gun, a memoir of the Syrian war. This conversation is unique in many senses. Marwan literally risked his life to smuggle material out of ISIS-occupied Raqqa to begin his collaboration with Molly. And their collaboration itself the ways they could be considered co-illustrators of the images and co-writers of the story is unusual and inspiring, and all the questions of how to make meaning to make art from a bewildering narrative, from a story with innumerable sides to it, seems vital to storytelling in general, even when we aren't talking about something as urgent and as complex as that of the Syrian war and its refugees. I do have one extra copy of the book, So the first person who reaches out who lives in the U.S., who has either been a supporter of the program for at least a year at any level, or who becomes a new patron at any level, I'm happy to mail this copy to you. Molly Crabapple is touring without her co-writer, Marwan Hisham. The politics in Syria and Turkey and in the U.S. wouldn't make it possible for him to tour with her. But she wanted listeners to be able to hear and see Marwan speaking. So she passed along a video to me of them together recorded while she was in Turkey, where he now lives. So I will put this up on the Patreon site for those who want to to watch and hear it after listening to this conversation. And likewise, um, Molly also mentions local on-the-ground organizations whose support would be a meaningful way to engage with the crisis if this conversation and the book inspire you to. So I'll put those links also up on the Patreon page uh, in a separate post. And, and you don't have to be a patron to access either of these. They will be available for everybody at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is artist, writer, and journalist Molly Crabapple. Molly Crabapple first made a name for herself as an artist in the world of burlesque, as a model for the Suicide Girls, a burlesque performer herself, and the house artist of the notorious New York City nightclub The Box. 
During that time, she also illustrated comics. And while there was a political element to some of Crabapple's work at the time, her work took a decidedly political turn in 2011 with the uprising of the Arab Spring, the student protests in London, and Occupy Wall Street, which unfolded just outside her studio apartment in Zuccotti Park. Her studio became an impromptu salon for the artists and journalists of the Occupy movement, and Crabapple began to create her singular style of art journalism with the art she produced as part of these protests. Matt Taibbi dubbed her the greatest of the Occupy artists, and Crabapple went on to illustrate Taibbi's book, The Divide, American Injustice in the Age of the Wealth Gap, and Lori Penny's Discordia, which chronicled the Greek economic crisis. Since then, Crabapple has become well-known as a long-form journalist, as well as a formal innovator creating a unique marriage of journalism, visual art, and literature. Her reportage has been published in the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, the Paris Review, Vice, The Guardian, and elsewhere. Crabapple's illustrated journalism, her marriage of words and art, has chronicled the aftermath of Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, labor camps in Abu Dhabi, the military commissions of Guantanamo detainees, the Syrian refugee crisis, and the history of transgender rights. She has collaborated with everyone from the ACLU, Human Rights Watch, and Amnesty International, to Jay-Z, Spike Jones, and Esperanza Spaulding. Her art is in the permanent collections of the Library of Congress, the New York Historical Society, and the Museum of Modern Art. The Guardian described her work as equal parts Hieronymus, Bosch, William S. Burroughs, and Cirque du Soleil, and Time Magazine named her one of its next-generation leaders, saying her work is a perfect slow-media commentary on our current fast-media climate. In 2015, Crabapple published her illustrated memoir, Drawing Blood, the story of her coming of age as both an artist and a writer, a book that received raves from Salman Rushdie, Joe Sacco, Chris Apani, and Joss Whedon. She's here today on Between the Covers to talk about her latest illustrated book, co-written with the Syrian journalist Marwan Hisham, and illustrated by Crabapple, entitled Brothers of the Gun, a memoir of the Syrian war. Anand Gopal says the following about Brothers of the Gun. Marwan Hisham took part in the uprising against Bashar al-Assad and then did the unthinkable, wrote journalism from inside ISIS territory, risking his life so that the world might know the truth. He gives us an unforgettable portrait of what it feels like to resist a tyrannical dictator, live under ISIS occupation, brave bombs falling from the sky, and somehow survive with humanity intact. Angela Davis calls Brothers of the Gun a revelatory and necessary read on one of the most destructive wars of our time. And Pankaj Mishra adds, From the anarchy, torment, and despair of the Syrian war, Marwan Hisham and Molly Crabapple have drawn a book of startling emotional power and intellectual depth. Many books will be written on the war's exhaustive devastation of bodies and souls and the defiant resistance of many trapped men and women but the Mahabharata of the Levant has already found its wisest chroniclers. Welcome to Between the Covers, Molly Crabapple. Oh, my pleasure to be here, and thanks for such a lovely introduction. So the origin of this story is is pretty remarkable. So I was hoping we could start with how you encountered Marwan Hisham and how you began collaborating for your Vanity Fair project together. Back in 2013, I was doing journalism about the Syrian war and about the refugee crisis. And there was a small circle of people on Twitter. Some of them were uh, Syrians, you know, some refugees, some people in the diaspora. Others were Western journalists and analysts. But we would all kind of talk about the war. And Marwan was one of those people. 
And at first, I was drawn to talking about him because on his Twitter bio, it said that he was in Raqqa. And at that time, Raqqa was under a brutal occupation by ISIS. And I was like, I can't believe it. I mean, look at the balls on this guy. He's tweeting under ISIS. So I started talking to Marwan privately. At first, uh, he was a source for some of my articles. He would give me information about various aspects of daily life under ISIS that wasn't really getting into the media. But as I started studying Arabic, we started to become much closer friends. And perhaps maybe six months into our, our um, online friendship, I asked Marwan, hey, you know, do you have any photos of daily life in Raqqa? Just the type of thing that we would all have on our phone, right? You know, we all take photos. That's our, our world. And he told me he didn't, but he offered to take some photos. And despite my many, many, many uh, naggings I gave him to stay safe, he repeatedly risked his life, because he's an amazing journalist, to take some of the most revelatory images I've seen coming out of Raqqa at that time. He took photos of kids uh, digging in the trash for stuff to sell, took photos inside an ISIS hospital of the bread lines. And this was such an extraordinary thing because to take photos under ISIS, that meant to be a spy. That was a death penalty offense under them. And yet he did it anyway because of his belief that images, images that were non-stereotypical, images of the city that he grew up in needed to get out. I drew from these photos, but I also knew that Marwan was a writer. He had graduated with an English literature degree from the finest university in his country, and he told me that he liked to you know, write political commentaries for fun. And I said, you know, why don't you uh, write some captions for these and publish it for, in Vanity Fair? About a week before our piece went up, Marwan broke the news of the U.S. airstrikes on Raqqa. He had gotten so used to living under bombs that when a plane that was considerably nicer than the Syrian regime's planes dropped some bombs or some Hellfire missiles right near the cafe where he worked, he was immediately able to identify that it was American just from the noise of the plane. Hmm. And he broke that news uh, 20 minutes before the Pentagon did. So when you received these photos that you then transformed into uh, illustrative art, uh, I would imagine there would be quite a bit of reconfiguring or even some imaginative process that goes on, on in your part. Because, I, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but given the danger to Marwan, I would imagine he's not spending a lot of time with composition, for instance, that these would be these would be photos that he'd be taking in, in weird positions or, or uh, in ways in which it doesn't look like he's taking a, photo, a photograph. Exactly. There's a really funny story that he talks about in the book where he was hiding his phone behind his falafel sandwich. So all of the photos are taken, you know, pretty far away. Uh, sometimes they're quite blurry, you know, at weird, like, upside-down angles. Sometimes he would take several photos of one scene. And so uh, because of that, it was less like it wasn't like I was copying a photo. It was more like I was looking through his eyes and then I was choosing what element that I was going to focus on. Or in some cases where photos were taken over a period of 10 minutes, there might be one where there was like some moms with kids walking. But then there's another uh, photo where they weren't there. And so I would like kind of, you know, put the two together. And I still remember, my God, when I got those photos, 
it was one of the most extraordinary experiences of my artistic life because the only way that a journalist, a Western journalist, was going to enter Raqqa at that time was if they were wearing an orange jumpsuit and starring in a beheading video. And yet here I had the immense privilege of seeing. I got to see through Marwan's eyes. I mean, you know, kind of made me shake when I got those photos the first time. And when you moved from the Vanity Fair project together to working on this memoir of living under the Syrian war, you expanded uh, the sources that you would use for images that then became drawings. Can, can you talk to uh, us a little bit about what that process was and, and what um, some of the sources are for, for the images that we encounter in the book? In my first three collaborations with Marwan, I was working exclusively from photos he took, but as we decided to do this book, we realized that there were just things that he wouldn't, that he couldn't have photos of. Some of these things were from the deep past, like when he was at religious school, for instance. Others of them were things that it would have been impossible, like enslaved Yazidi women that were brought into his cafe, and photos that even if he could have taken them, he wouldn't have because it would have violated those women's dignity and their privacy. For stuff like this, we had to rely on tons of different sources. In general, I had two different processes. Some of the pictures I'm proudest of in this book are these huge, huge crowd scenes I did of protests. The way I would do these was I would look for a citizen video that had been taken of these protests at the time. And this video, it's really hard to make out if you don't know what's going on because the people who are taking it, they're not journalists. They're guys with camera phones running away from live ammo and rubber bullets and clouds of tear gas. So everything is blurry. Everything is chaotic. But if you know how to look at them, there's a lot of information. What I would do is I would take these videos and I would stop them. I'd pause them over and over again and I would freeze frame them. And then I'd print out maybe like 50, 100 um, freeze frames from the video and I would lay them all out on my table. And very often when these videos were freeze framed, you couldn't even make out the people because they were so blurry, they looked like smears. So I would repose models as these people so that I could get stuff like mm. arms and hands right. And then from this, I would make massive crowd scenes and I would try to make it feel as much as it possibly could like you were there with all of the motion and the chaos and people moving as one all of the smoke from the burning tires all the tear gas all the people holding up their iPhones I tried to like put it all into one thing I was really really inspired by Goya's disasters of war throughout the book I even did the same amount of illustrations as he did and for those ones in particular, I looked very closely and very technically at how he worked. Well, that was one type of process. But there are other illustrations that were more personal, that were, for instance, the picture of the Azidi women. And for illustrations like that, I relied on Marwan's memory. I don't regard these illustrations as mine alone in this book. I regard them as both of ours because he art directed them so heavily to make sure that they were authentic and that they were true. For the image of the Azidi women, Marwan was so adamant this was not going to be some sappy Western cliche. This was not going to be some Madonna and child knockoff. He remembered exactly what those women looked like. He remembered everything from the carelessness of one of the women's hands to the shock in her daughter's eyes to the exact way that their hijabs were tied behind their necks. And 
what we did was I drew sketch after sketch. I remember even I would draw sketches of different ways like the young girl's mouth could be, right? Or different hand gestures. And he'd tell me, no, make the fingers looser. No, make her eyes wider. No, this, no, that. I I was so frustrated by the end. I, won't, I think we both wanted to throttle each other. But finally, I got something that was true to what he saw. He compared the process to downloading his memories. Hmm. Well, it's interesting about that, about your statement that he was a co-maker um, of these images, even though you were the one whose hand was was drawing them is that even though this is his narrative, you were also the co-writer of, of, of the book. Can, can you talk about the ways in which you were co-writing the, the text of the book? Oh, God, I can. At the start of this, I, I didn't realize why people don't co-write with each other usually, but by the end of it, <laughs> I, I think both of us do, which is that writers are egomaniacs. And <laughs> you know the classic, the classic saying, kill your darlings, right? So when you co-write with someone, it's more like you take each other's darlings hostage so that your <laughs> darlings can live or else their darlings gets it. So I, <laughs> me and Marwan worked on this book for three years. I went to Istanbul over a dozen times to write with him. The birth of the book was notes that Marwan took on his phone when he was in Raqqa. He had always wanted to write a book, but he imagined that he would do it as a 70-year-old man, you know, looking back on this. He didn't think that it was something that was going to happen anytime soon. But he knew that he was living through history, and he wanted to record that as best he could. The way that we worked was we took these notes that uh, Marwan wrote and, you know, additional stuff that he had written and then uh, laid them all out, saw what are stuff that we need more, what are stuff that we need less. And uh, Marwan and me, but primarily Marwan, worked on a structure. Then what I did is I sat next to him and I interviewed him the way that you'd interview a source as a journalist. And I interviewed him in the most detail-oriented, probably excruciatingly annoying way, where I'd be like, tell me about the checkpoint. How high was the wall around the checkpoint? What did the guy at the checkpoint look like? Uh, oh, he's wearing a suicide vest. What type of suicide vest? That sort of thing. And I would just type, type, type while I was sitting next to him. And eventually, you know, we had a book where I had written half and he had written half or we had a draft. But this, this is where the reason that our process is unusual comes in. Then he took my draft and I took his draft or we took our halves and we rewrote each other. Hmm. So Marwan, he uh, has an English lit degree, as I said, and I, I dropped out of Fashion Institute of Technology, which ought to give you an idea, perhaps, of uh, the different types of readings we've both done. Marwan is someone who reads Derrida. He knows like Noam Chomsky's linguistics. He translated Waiting for Godot for fun during university wow. into, into Arabic. He uh, has a really intense literary background, and he particularly has a passion for stuff that is oblique and mysterious, stuff that plays with time, stuff that messes around with sentence structure. Whereas I got my start writing as a journalist, and so my uh, natural instinct was perhaps less Joyce and more Orwell. He would look at my stuff and he would say, no, we're not going to do it in this like straightforward, basic way. We are going to play with time. We're going to make it more sophisticated. He also has this total contempt for the way that uh, books on the Middle East very often have to spoon feed basic, basic information to the readers. How a book on Syria will literally have to start with Syria is a country in the Middle East. It's predominantly Muslim, but there is an Alawite minority. 
he would be, oh, my God, can't people Google what's wrong with them? Why do we have to take ourselves out of the plot to do these like digressions of Middle East 101 college courses that people ought to know anyway? So he would just go through with the red pen of justice and XXX, wrong, wrong, wrong. Meanwhile, with his portions, I looked at them from a few standpoints. The first was uh, Marwan has never been uh, outside of uh, a few outside of Syria and a few neighboring countries. And so he had no idea of the vast, impossible depths of ignorance in the U.S. about the Middle East. And often he would, for instance, mention uh, the events of 1982 and I would say no one in the U.S. knows what the events of 1982 are. No one in the U.S. knows that uh, Hafez al-Assad murdered uh, tens of thousands of people in Hama, putting down a Muslim Brotherhood revolt. And so, you know, you can't say this expecting it to have the same emotional resonance it would have in Syria. I would uh, try to make it something that was accessible and legible to American readers. Also, very often I would push back on uh, different perspectives. I'd ask him... For instance, under ISIS, I would ask him, uh, what about women, you know, Marwan? And I would rewrite his side with these concerns in view. And then we would rewrite each other again and again and again to the point where every single sentence, I think, has <laughs> multiple, multiple, multiple revisions of each of us. And then the editor would come and then he would he would say, do this, do that, do that and rewrite, rewrite, rewrite until we have uh, this book. And this is the hardest and most precious project I've ever done. While I do realize that the reason that people don't collaborate like this is because it's intensely difficult and it requires putting your ego on hold to create art, I think that we both grew enormously as writers. My friend Sinan Antun, who's also one of my favorite novelists, I was describing the process to him and he was like, sounds excruciating but exhilarating. Which yeah. It sounds amazing. I mean, it does sound painful, but it does sound amazing also. I wanted to ask you about when you were doing your Guantanamo project, you said that you wanted to find the story of one detainee as sort of an entryway into something immense. And it feels like Marwan Hisham is is the perfect entryway. And, and the reason I say that is because he seems to be uh, inherently curious and also inherently skeptical. So he's skeptical of the Assad regime, but he's also skeptical of the... Um, religious upbringing that he had. He's, he's question, he questions everything that sort of comes prepackaged and delivered to him. So that I, imagining another narrator into this uh, war who maybe readily takes a side, it would be an entirely different book. Instead, we see th this man who is watching everyone else take sides. And I, I just wanted to um, hear more about whether that was just good luck on your part in this in in finding each other and and him becoming the the sort of guide or or was that also part of when you were encountering him initially that you you felt like this was the person I want to collaborate on in terms of a memoir in, in the Syrian war yeah he's an extraordinary person he's one of the most skeptical cynical yet idealistic people I've ever met probably one of like the truest most natural born journalists I think the reason that I, I wanted to work with Marwan so much and um, I wouldn't I probably I, I actually would never have written this book with anyone else. And I, I know many uh, amazing Syrian journalists. I, I know many amazing Syrians with all sorts of fascinating stories. But 
I wouldn't have done this book with anyone but Marwan. And in part, it's directly because of that, because he's someone who ha has this intense moral courage to look at everything with the same sort of lacerating sharpness and including himself, right? Including every single sacred thing. And I don't just mean sacred in terms of religion. I mean, sacred in terms of politics, right? I mean, um, sacred in terms of sort of the local loyalties that you would have. He turns the same sort of sharp questioning eye to all of it. It's a courage. I don't, it's a courage I know that I, I wouldn't even have for myself. I wrote a memoir myself and I know exactly how hard it is. And I know the things that I wouldn't say in my own memoir. But that courage and that intellect was why I wanted to work with him so much. Well, maybe this is a good time where we could hear a little bit of the prose. This passage is about one of Marwan's memories from his childhood. When he was a young boy, the country uh, was under the dictatorship of Hafez al-Assad, who is the father of Bashar al-Assad, the current dictator of Syria. And this is about the semi-religious worship of this very secular leader. When I was nine years old, I thought Hafez al-Assad was the president of the entire world. When I was bored during lectures, I would stare up at the portrait of our comrade, the father and the leader, looming over us from the front of the classroom. He smiled down gently, his suit sharp, his tie silvery, prayer beads frozen mid-click between his hands. This portrait wasn't just in the classroom, of course, but everywhere I looked. Hafez al-Assad was our patriarch, the unbeatable general who had delivered our country to safety by seizing control of the government in what he called the corrective movement. A beloved father who, every seven years, won a landslide election with no less than 99% of our votes. On every possible occasion, we saluted him, marched in his praise, wrote poems in his honor. Sometimes we confused him for God. Each morning, we queued up in the playground while a teacher led us through the slogans. Now I understood what it felt like to lose your individuality. I was lost like those men in that Sufi circle. We students in our rows shouted each line of the slogans until the triumphant finish. Our leader forever, Comrade Hafez al-Assad. My father had other ideas. In your heart, replace the last three words with Muhammad, messenger of God, my father told me, protesting when I described our daily pledge. No other man shall be my leader forever, my father thought, least of all a man he deemed an enemy of our religion for transforming himself into a deity in our godly land. Two years later, an event happened that defied the logic of our world. Impossibly, our father and comrade died. The country plunged into an ecstasy of mourning. It took me months to absorb that a god could perish. His death birthed thousands of brand new Hafez al-Assads. His image returned to us in photos, drawings, sculptures, and Ba'ath party flags affixed to every surface. Syrian flags unfurled into infinity, their two central stars green and sharp as vipers' eyes. 
another adjective was added to his name, and thus he became the immortal comrade, Hafez al-Assad. We've been listening to Molly Crabapple read from her co-written memoir, Brothers of the Gun, a memoir of the Syrian war with Marwan Hisham. So you, you mentioned one of the challenges of writing a book of the Syrian war is, I think, the immense ignorance of, of American readership. But another is just this complexity of, of narrative. This is not a simple good versus evil. Uh, so much like with you in the, the Arab Spring, which sort of was part of a year of you really pivoting into this, this new innovative form of illustrated journalism and, and, and writing, the Arab Spring prompted Marwan to go to his first protest in Syria. And that's really the only point in the book where things are simple. Uh, this impulse uh, to want a more representative, participatory uh, government and and a country that isn't just living on the nostalgia of sort of past glories, but also looking towards a future where the, the people's wishes are more represented. But um, what's really interesting as we follow Marwan in this is even before there's any foreign powers, even before there's ISIS, Russia, Iran, Israel, the U.S. and Europe fighting a proxy war in Syria— the the just the rebel groups versus Assad's regime, uh, with twenty three different rebel groups, all with their own various agendas, is be, is a bewildering narrative. And I, I was I was interested in hearing how you both confronted that. I mean, we have that tendency to begin with, regardless, even putting aside the ignorance of good versus bad, and yet here we have. Um, just a kaleidoscope, essentially, of actors that are that are uh, in Syria prior even to the foreign intervention. It's an incredibly complicated war, and one of the first questions uh, that Syrian uh, protesters were faced with was even whether or not to militarize. Many people never wanted to pick up guns. They wanted it to be a purely peaceful uprising. Marwan himself was one of those people. Uh, there are figures in Syria like Khayf Matar, who was called Little Gandhi, who would present uh, soldiers with uh, flowers and bottles of water. But uh, Khayf Matar was tortured to death by the government. And in some ways, the not in some ways, in all ways, the intense, intense brutality with which the government responded, virtually forced uh, many people to pick up guns. And part of the reason that there are so many of these small rebel groups is because many times the reason that people first picked up guns was that uh, government troops and uh, shabiha, these are like sort of criminals that are paid by the government, uh, armed government supporters that were allowed to do crimes. Shabiha would go into people's neighborhoods and they would invade people's houses and they would rape people and they would take people off. And a lot of times people didn't arm up with the idea that they were going to like invade a city. They armed up saying, I don't want anyone to come into my house and, you know, take my kid away and torture them. And a lot of the groups in Syria and the reason that there is so much of a kaleidoscope came from the fact that these groups were not things that started with a top down you know, general leading everything, these groups were essentially the equivalent of like neighborhood watch groups of local guys trying to protect um, their block that they lived on. And one of, I think, uh, the tragedies of the opposition side of the war, and this is something Marwan talks about, but also if anyone wants a more uh, 
exhaustive uh, catalog of this, they should uh, read Rania Abu Zayed's No Turning Back, which is an amazing uh, book on the war in Syria, too. Uh, one of the tragedies of uh, the Syrian war was that the opposition side was never able to unify because of the vast array of uh, foreign backers, each with their own agenda, most specifically uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar, solving their beefs by pitting rebel groups against each other. Mm. Well, one of the ways I think that um, this book really tells the story in a way that we can grasp is by following the brothers that are referred to in, in the title, the brothers of the gun. So, so Marwan has two friends, one a visual artist and one a, a poet, who uh, we we watch as Marwan tries to stay in this position of staying connected to his his uh, humanity and his values. We watch his friends making other decisions uh, connected to their own. So, can you tell us a little bit about the the two brothers and and um, and Marwan's following of, of how they uh, diverge. Niall and Tarek were two guys that Marwan grew up with uh, who were his very, very close friends. Niall was someone that uh, when Marwan was telling me about his character, I really identified with him. He uh, was a visual artist um, from... Uh, He's from poor family in Raqqa, had to work like really hard. He even was left back a year in school because he like was working too hard at his job, loading trucks to take tests. But he was incredibly passionate about art. And he finally got the chance to study at uh, the Damascus University of Fine Art, which is the best art school in the country. And in Damascus, he totally reinvented himself right down to trying to ditch his uh, Rakawi accent, which is a more rural accent, for a more fancy city Damascus accent. And that was the path he was going on of being kind of like an artist hipster until the revolution happened. And he took part in protests. And Niall, the thing that changed everything for him was that Niall was arrested. And when he was arrested, he saw people being tortured and also uh, religiously humiliated. One of uh, the very radicalizing things that the government forces did during the war was that they would uh, torture people and force them to say things like, Bashar al-Assad is my god. And this isn't something that's hearsay. This is something that the government forces made videos of that ended up on YouTube that were just horrific, dignity-crushing, disgusting torture videos. And um, that was something that Niall witnessed firsthand. And once he saw this, he became convinced that the regime was way too brutal to ever be negotiated with, that if they just kept going to peaceful protests, they'd just be slaughtered like a bunch of sheep, and that the only way to uh, get the regime to cease murdering people and turn to cease murdering people and to fall was to uh, join an armed group. Niall uh, joined a, a local armed group, and he died very early in uh, the war. He, he died fighting against the government. Niall's brother, Tarek, initially hadn't really wanted to be involved in the war. He had been an early protester, but then he had gone to university in Beirut where he was studying Arabic literature and working at a cafe and living really the sort of life that any young man would envy. He even had like a cool motorcycle, you know. <laughs> he had a great life there. But when Niall was killed... Tariq immediately went back to Syria, determined to avenge his brother's death. 
And he joined uh, the first group that seemed like it had um, the first group that seemed like it wasn't thieves, basically, and that seemed effective, which was a fundamentalist Islamist group called Ahrar Asham. And Ahrar Asham was not a group that Tariq would have ideologically identified with or felt close to before uh, the war at all. But as the war progressed, he um, adopted more and more of their ideology and eventually became an extremely battle-hardened soldier and a a sniper. And for much of the war, he primarily uh, fought against ISIS. And that's an interesting point, too, because he, he joined a fundamentalist Islamist group and was fighting ISIS. I would imagine most people without a lot of uh, knowledge of what's going on would just collapse all the Islamist groups into ISIS and similarly would think that all secularism was the same, whereas people who were fighting uh, Assad were also fearful of like an Ataturk-style secularism. So even though they were fighting a secularist government, that didn't mean that they wanted like a Turkish style of secularism, which is so fascinating to be able to walk through with someone there and parse out these nuances um, when something like this tends to, I think, resist complexity when we get it presented to us in the news. Could you t- could you speak to um, the cover image of Tarek playing the uh, machine gun as a violin and and both why you chose it as a, a cover image and and what it's what's behind that image in the first place. The cover image is actually drawn from a self-portrait that Tarek took and posted on his Instagram that Marwan gave to me. And and I think the reason that Marwan and also I like this image so much is that it shows a man who is completely immersed in war and death to the point where he's this close to his gun, but also a man who, before the war, was someone deeply engaged with beauty. I mean, he wrote poetry throughout the war. He had an Instagram where he took these astoundingly talented photos and it's like he was trying to hold on to that part of himself even though he is surrounded by killing and death the reason that marwan uh, chose this image is that uh, tarik died in the last days of uh, of us doing this book he was he was killed fighting and uh, marwan wanted this to be a tribute to him marwan uh, disagreed with tarik on almost everything uh, but he was still someone that he admired for uh, pursuing his beliefs until the end and mm. someone who he had grown up with. Would you be willing to read the epigram to the epigraph to the book, the poem at the beginning? Of course. We started the book with a poem by uh, Muhammad al-Marut, who is an amazing Syrian poet that unfortunately isn't really translated into English and who lived uh, for quite a long time uh, near Raqqa. Marwan did this translation himself. They gave us watches and took away time. They gave us shoes and took the paths. They gave us parliaments and took freedom. They gave us playground swings and took celebrations. They gave us dried milk and took childhood. They gave us fertilizers and took spring. They gave us guards and locks and took safety. They gave us rebels and took the revolution. We've been listening to Molly Crabapple read from her co-written memoir, Brothers of the Gun, a memoir of the Syrian war with Marwan Hisham. I'd like to return to something you mentioned at the beginning, that 
the 82 images in, in this book are related to the 82 uh, paintings by Goya, the uh, Disasters of War. Can you, can you speak to what Goya's Disasters of War was uh, addressing and, and why you wanted to have this sort of mirroring with what he was doing? Goya's Disasters of War were a series of etchings that he did. They were a series of images he did that were about the Napoleonic invasion of Spain and the related atrocities. These images were not done at the time. They were done later. And uh, they were done in the shadow of a Spain that was still dominated by the Inquisition. And they're images that in some ways are journalistic and in some ways are not. Some of them show you know, firing squads or they show, uh, I remember there's one of a woman who is very, very famous for um, loading the cannon and firing when all the men in her, her village were dead. Others, though, show impossible images, images that couldn't exist, that uh, were surreal, uh, like bodies in trees, um, a woman holding up her dead lover, but the dead lover almost is weightless and his, his physically impossible the way that he's standing. There are images that in their surrealism show aspects of the horrors of war that perhaps something more naturalistic couldn't adequately convey. I also uh, looked at them very closely for the technical aspects. I, I hadn't planned to do this book in black and white. All of our collaborations before that were in color. But uh, the publisher, he wanted... I'm sorry, the publishers wanted to do it in black and white uh, so that it would be easier to sell translations. And as soon as I knew that I was going to look at it, as soon as I knew that I was going to do it in black and white, I had to look at the greatest master of black and white war drawings in history. I tried to draw both from like more philosophical aspects of what he was doing, but also like very technical aspects, aspects of gray wash and white and framing. Luckily, in the course of doing this book, there was actually an exhibition of Goya at the Brooklyn Museum. And I I got to look at them in person and I would stick my face right up to the drawings and I would see exactly how he made each and every one of those little lines that was so apt and so perfect and so dark. Hmm. Well, in reading about it myself, uh, it was interesting to discover that because of the immediacy and also the brutality and the way that the scenes extended beyond the frame, that his his etchings were compared to 20th century photojournalism before there were photographs, which feels like a real link to you in the way that you were illustrating photographs uh, for this project. Can you can you speak to the ways in which you feel like illustration has an advantage if you if you believe so over photography or uh, even illustrations of photography, what it can offer that perhaps photography by itself can't? The greatest strength and weakness of photography is that a photographer has to be there. That's why uh, photojournalists are the most brave journalists that you can ever meet, because they're actually the ones that are in the front line there with their camera, risking all of the bullets themselves. They can't just stay back at their hotel, right, and get dispatches. They're They're right in the thick of everything. This is part of what makes photography so powerful, right? You're seeing it firsthand. This is why photography can be used as proof, you know, that war crimes happened. It's why photography can change things in so many ways. But it's also a weakness, right? Because 
power likes to censor places. And there's a lot of places that you cannot take a camera into. You can't take cameras into prisons. It's very hard to take photos in military checkpoints. There are all sorts of uh, totalitarian regimes, of which I include ISIS as one of them, that either severely limit or ban photos. So if you had to rely on photography alone, whole swaths of life and of the world, some of the most oppressive and dark swaths would not be recorded. And this is where I believe that as artists, we have a huge advantage. I love uh, Joe Sacco's Palestine like everyone else. I'm sure that's no surprise. But one of the things I loved about it was that he interviews Palestinians that had been imprisoned by the Israelis. And obviously, there is not a photojournalist in someone's solitary cell. There, there will never be images of that. But what uh, Sacco was able to do was he was able to interview uh, these men and women who had been imprisoned and then draw their memories. He was able to take things that power did not want to be visually legible and make them visual, make people see what was supposed to be unseen. And this is something that I tried to do with the book as well. That's just one advantage. Another advantage is that I'm going to borrow a quote from Jeremy Scahill here, uh, who's an amazing journalist I, I'm lucky enough to know. And he said that the ultimate way to scrub meta metadata from a photo is to draw it. Hmm. These drawings, they hide people's identities because it's not right to show the real faces of people lived under who lived under ISIS or who uh, were at protests. It's not right to do that. It could put them at risk. A photograph, in the same way that it can prove war crimes, it can also get activists locked up in jail, right? And also with illustration, you can foreground the censorship that's happening. I know you did that in Guantanamo with you weren't allowed to draw the faces of the guards, I believe, right? Exactly. Guantanamo has the most stringent censorship under the pretext of what they call operational security or OPSEC. You have a list of things you're not allowed to photograph. And at first that sounds doable, but then you quickly realize that if you're not photographing any doors and if you're not photographing any cameras and you're not photographing any faces and you're not photographing like two architectural features in one drawing, what are you, or in one photo, what are you photographing? You're photographing the floor. In Guantanamo, I was able to just draw around that censorship. And most particularly, because I wasn't allowed to draw the faces of guards, I drew uh, blank smiley face masks. Mm. I want to read a, a, just a brief quote that you said about writing, dis, uh, illustrating Discordia about the Greek economic crisis, and then just ask you a little bit more about something that you say in it. So you, you said, as I illustrated Discordia, I found that drawings like photojournalism could distill the essential. Unlike photography, though, visual art has no pretense of objectivity. It is joyfully, defiantly subjective. Its truth is individual. Picasso's Guernica doesn't explain what a body looks like after a carpet bombing, but it does show the agony of war. When I drew, I could see nothing more clearly than the space between my art and its subject. And I wondered about this space between art and subject. It, it made me think of Teju Cole, who's a photographer, activist, writer, I'm sure you, whose work I'm, I'm guessing you probably know. And he asked uh, John Berger uh, why photography wasn't part of his practice. And, and Berger said that for him to photograph a subject was to foreclose some part of what he could write about. He saw it as an interference uh, to his writing faculties. And I wondered if that was something to do with this presence or absence of the space between art 
and subject, or if you if you feel any resonance with that sentiment. It was a little bit different for me. When I talk about the space between my art and the subject, you're, you're hanging out with these people who are living flesh and blood people who are universes in themselves, you know, full of, of life and complexity and courage. And then when you try to draw them, or when I try to draw them at least, all I could see was all of the life that my picture lacked compared to them, right? And I would try and I would try and I would try and I would, I would push myself to get better and better. But always I would feel that weight of all that there was about them that I couldn't express. Hmm. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Molly Crabapple about Brothers of the Gun, Memoirs of the Syrian War, co-written by Marwan Hisham. Well, maybe this is a good time just to briefly mention why uh, Marwan isn't with us here in this conversation. Uh, why, why isn't he able to do the tour with you? Man, so this is one of the reasons that doing the tour is actually rather melancholy for me because Marwan can't join me. And the reason he can't join me is because of specific policies of three different countries, and I'll try to spell them out. The first is that uh, the Syrian regime is incredibly vindictive to Syrians outside of Syria. It's done every possible thing it can to screw them over, including uh, Bashar al-Assad saying there was lots of terrorists among the refugees going to Europe. Uh, and one of the things is that they make it extremely difficult and extremely expensive to get a passport. A passport that would cost maybe $25 inside the country can cost up to like 1000 outside the country if you can even get an appointment. And that's not without all the bribes. And another reason that Marwan can't get a passport is because uh, like countless, countless Syrian men, he didn't do his military service. There are thousands and thousands, I don't know if there's an exact number, but many tens of thousands of men who fled the country rather than killing their fellow citizens. And this is something that I consider to be an act of heroism. It's not cowardice, no matter how much the Tony, the Tommy Larins of the world want to paint it as that. These men are risking their lives to avoid murdering other people. And um, because these men did that, they're denied passports by the government. And in fact, they're actually on wanted lists. There was a list of 1.5 million people who are wanted for the government by question for questioning. And many of these are men who ditched their army service. So that's why he can't get his passport. Then uh, there's the policies of Turkey, uh, where Maron is currently living. Uh, Turkey makes it very difficult for Syrians to get permanent residency. And because of this, it's quite possible that uh, if someone leaves Turkey with a legitimate Syrian passport and visa, that they can't ever get back in. There are, I believe, three countries in the entire world right now that accept Syrians without visas, which are Ecuador, the Sudan, and Malaysia. And if you couldn't get back into Turkey, you would either have to go to one of them or more likely uh, you'd share the fate of many Syrians now, which is being trapped in the airport and living in airport terminals. Uh, the third reason is we are living under Donald Trump, and it's very, very hard, um, nearly impossible for Syrians to get visas. I have a friend who is a, she's a, tra a trans woman living in Canada right now who uh, was invited uh, by Rutgers University to speak at an LGBT rights conference. And she paid her $600 to apply for a visa and was turned down and does not get the $600 back. Mm. And, uh, you know, she is a... She's a trans woman speaking at an LGBT conference, not a, a, a young man, right? 
So these things combine to make it to be basically impossible for him to come. I'm not saying that perhaps someone somewhere who has influence could have come, but for, for Marwano, it just wasn't, it wasn't possible. And it's something I'm very sad about. Yeah. And what makes him such a remarkable uh, mind to be with in Syria in this book is because he's able to present us with a lot of these um, complex nuances. Like, for instance, I'm thinking from a narrative perspective also, like he is for democracy in its uh, essence as an ideal. But most Syrians are skeptical of that word for good reason, because of all the forces that have come in from other places under the guise of democracy and have done very undemocratic things. So it's it's very all these nuances. And then this other, the other part that I thought was interesting too, is, um, him talking about how, uh, well, I think maybe this is something that you mentioned. It might've even been on Twitter that we have this, uh, this misconception that all the Syrian refugees are poor, but in fact, they can't get visas like you mentioned. So they can't fly into Europe. The reason they're on a raft and then walking across Europe is, is a purely a bureaucratic issue. But one thing that he raises on that similar tack is that a lot of the jihadists, a lot of the ISIS jihadists in specific are Europeans, and that these European jihadists in Syria and their leaders aren't being cracked down on by their European government. So you'll have like the leader of, of ISIS in London or somewhere else who's tweeting about jihad on behalf of ISIS, and yet Europe is bombing Raqqa instead of taking care of these people in, in England. And he was very perplexed by this weird um, hypocrisy. But I wondered if you had any insight in, in, in that um, in that strange relationship between the, the rhetoric that is coming out of Europe and, for that matter, probably North America, and, and then the reality that all of the, um, the havoc is happening in, in Syria. Well, I would make one note. So when he was talking about the skepticism of democracy, in large part, he was talking about the specific community that he comes from, which is a, you know, rural, uh, you know, pretty, pretty conservative uh, community where most people don't have like the privilege of going to college, for instance. Uh, I, there are many certainly Syrians in like Damascus and Aleppo and across the country who have a great respect for democracy. And in fact, uh, in uh, Sarakab right now and Idlib, uh, there were actually democratic elections, uh, you know, local elections in spite of everything. So I, I just want to clarify that a bit. And also, I wouldn't say that, that they were these were ISIS leaders. That the, uh, that that would be a bit misleading. These were more like um, what was his name, uh, Adram Chowdhury. He was like a self-appointed imam who had no actual religious background. He just sort of said he was an imam, mm. uh, and he w was someone who would go on uh, Sean Hannity a, a lot to be uh, the guy that Sean Hannity could point at and say, like, look at these Muslims, they're all fundamentalist. So, like, Adram Chowdhury would tweet in support of ISIS throughout the entire war and was recruiting people for ISIS. And uh, this was happening uh, with another group called Sharia for Belgium. And... The thing that Marwan is talking about, to me, really came down to the greatest disparity in our world, which is the disparity between people who have good passports and people who have bad passports. To me, in many ways, that outweighs almost everything else. So if you're a Belgian citizen, right, even if you're like a pretty disadvantaged Belgian citizen, you know, you're, you're a brown guy, um, you know, you're poor, uh, your dad's an immigrant, you're Muslim, even with all of that, you still have certain rights as a Belgian citizen. And one of them is that you can't just be arrested if you haven't actually done any crimes. 
um, your passport usually can't be taken away if you haven't done any crimes. As a Belgium, as as a citizen of Belgium who has a Belgian passport, you're allowed to uh, fly to Turkey with no visa, right? And uh, travel freely in Turkey because that's the privilege of coming from a very wealthy country like Belgium. So what was happening was that all of these uh, Western European countries, uh, much less much less America, they're, they're, as far as I've seen, there really has is not like actually ISIS penetration into Muslim communities in America in any sort of statistically significant way. Like this is more of a like Britain, uh, France, Belgium type thing. So what was happening was these young men were very often who had criminal backgrounds were um, getting flipped to ISIS and kind of known to the local authorities for for a long time, but they weren't actually doing any crimes. They you know were just saying repellent things, hanging out with repellent figures. And then, so not getting arrested because they didn't do crimes, and then flying with their passport that they still had and going into Turkey, and which they were allowed to do as Belgian, then taking a bus over to the border and then sneaking over the border. And the thing that would make Marwan so angry is he was like, look at the privilege of this, right? I have never done anything. I have never been to France in my life. I have no control over these French totalitarian psychopaths that are coming to my city, colonizing it, stealing homes in the city, killing my neighbors, raping local women, and destroying my entire world. I, I don't have any control over this. And yet, because France or, or Belgium or America or any other Western country is so scared of these guys, they're bombing my city and murdering my neighbors. And... I'm not going to comment on um, – I, I can't comment on – I don't support surveillance of Muslim communities in the West either. I do not support anyone going to jail for not doing any crimes. But I, I deeply understand the intense anger at the disparity where they say, oh, these are our citizens. We can't touch them. They're allowed to move freely and do whatever we want. But you, you're just a Syrian. Don't matter if you live or die. So um, if our citizens go to where you live and then come back and do a crime in our country and murder people, we're going to bomb you and kill you because your lives don't matter because you're Syrian. Yeah. And this is something we don't really hear in the predominant narrative here. And I feel like you and Marwan are looking to... Uh, come up with a visual narrative that's also different than the the typical narrative and you've you've called this the age of infinite photos and the Syrian war the most documented war ever and yet we tend to see the same images over and over again so could you could you briefly speak to how you also wanted to come up with a different visual narrative kind of like you you came up with the actual narrative the images that we uh, tend to see uh, from the middle east they're images of horror, right? They're images of broken people and broken cities. And while that is absolutely true and that needs to be seen, these are also places where people live. These are places where people go to work and go to school and have kids and try to find beauty and pleasure. 
And the danger of only showing images of the Middle East that show it broken is that people in the West start to think that that's how the Middle East always was and it always will be and it's just filled with a bunch of savages that were always fighting each other and what does it even matter if we drop more bombs on them? What does it matter if Russia bombs them? What if it matter? What does it matter if a dictator uh, like Assad bombs them? That's just how it is. It's just a war-torn place. Uh, to me, those sort of stereotypes, they're so, so dangerous. One of the images that uh, Marwan thought was immensely important, and he uh, took a photo of it at immense risk to himself, was an image towards the end of the book which shows a man and a woman sitting by the banks of the Euphrates uh, on a date under ISIS. Mm. And that would be something that you would never see in the West. You would never think that, okay, these people are under ISIS, they're under bombings, and yet they're taking a great risk just to love each other and just have a beautiful moment by the river in their city. Mm. I, I want to ask another question about whether there's an aesthetic or conceptual philosophy with regards to how um, you want the words to be in relationship to the text. Just to return to Teju Cole uh, once once again, he, he once said, the photograph and the words arrive simultaneously. They guarantee each other. You believe the words more because the photograph verifies them and trust the photograph because you trust the words. Additionally, each puts further pressure on the interpretation. A war photograph can, for example, make a grim situation palatable, just as a story about a scandal can make the politician depicted look pathetic. But images, unlike words, are often presumed to be unbiased. The facticity of a photograph can conceal the craftiness of its content and selection. And I know in, in, we've talked about how, in contrast to photographs, you feel like illustrations aren't as readily assumed to be uh, objective. Um, but you you said in, in your memoir, Drawing Blood, that you wanted the illustrations in the text to be mutually complementary, but not dependent on each other. And I wondered if, if that philosophy is extending into Brothers of the Gun, or is there a different f image text philosophy for this book? No, it's, it's a very similar one. I, I always liked... Uh... Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, which has, you know, which is an amazing WPA funded uh, work about uh, sharecropper families that was done during the Depression. And it has staggering photos and also you know, staggering text. And you can look at either body of work separately. And in fact, you know, people often have. But uh, when together, they uh, complement each other and they, I mean, I think that they give each other staggering new levels of, of meaning. And that was something that I was inspired by and I spoke to Marwan about when we were doing it. I didn't want the illustrations to be like direct, dumb, like this is what we described and now you can look at it. I, there are definitely some scenes that are, that are illustrated, but they're directly from the text, but there are other scenes that aren't in the text. Like the uh, thing I told you about with the uh, couple at the banks of the Euphrates. And I wanted the work to stand alone. Maybe that's also just my egoism as an artist. I think a lot of visual artists, we, we realize that the world does not value us as much as they do the word people. And so we insist on, uh, on standing alone in that way. Hmm. Well, I've marked out another section that I was hoping you'd read on, on page 120. I am bound by obligation to provide you, my honorable reader, with some necessary details. 
Islam came to Arabia at a time when noble Meccans worshipped gods of their own creation. Omar, the second caliph to be, built his god from dates, and when he became hungry, he ate it. Arabs adopted Islam by conversion and by force. In the next centuries, but largely under Omar's reign, the Muslim empire stretched from China to the kingdom of Leon. For centuries after, Arab Muslims had a caliph or caliphs, both Arab and non-Arab, who cherished their religion. But since the Great War, the caliph has been missing, and Muslims have been searching for him. Some said he was hiding underground, waiting for epic battles to come in which he himself would lead the unified Ummah to more glories. While some thought he would be Shia, a true follower of Islam, others argued that he could only be Sunni, a true follower of Islam. So now it seemed our caliph was Baghdadi, of the American prison camp Buka, and his cortege from Britain's Birmingham. Sunnis were unsatisfied, and Shia denounced him as fake. ISIS declared itself the caliphate, here to stay and ready to expand. Islamists, Shiite and Sunni alike, burdened their shoulders with the interests of the Ummah, the global community of Islam. So they drove the Ummah to fight amongst itself. For this very reason, Muslims got Khomeini, bin Laden, and the kings of Saudi Arabia. We would know no winner, no peace. We've been listening to Molly Crabapple read from her book, Brothers of the Gun, co-written with Marwan Hisham. So when, when ISIS overtakes Raqqa, Marwan which is Marwan's town, he decides to stay. And not only does he decide to stay, but he decides to run an internet cafe that is uh, often populated by ISIS fighters from Chechnya, from Europe, from other Arab countries. And he's having in, even the people bringing in, as you mentioned, the Yazidi uh, uh, women who have become slaves. Um, and he's having to negotiate all of these various cultures. And you also have had a, a, a similar, well, not a similar, but you've, you've, worked in a lot of different um, countries in the Middle East uh, and have learned Arabic yourself as part of that. And I, I was curious if your learning of Arabic is uh, because it was a, a prerequisite as a, as a photojournalist, long-form journalist, illustrator, or, or the exact opposite, that you were seeing that most of the Western journalists weren't even trying to learn Arabic. Most Western journalists don't know Arabic, unfortunately. Uh, one of the things I always remember is Robert Fisk, who I think has lived for three decades, perhaps, in Lebanon. His Arabic is so poor that he can't tell the difference between the word for mother and the word for uh, Islamic community, um and ummah. This is something that only comes from Western privilege and English language hegemony. My mother says that it reminds her of the days of the Raj when the Brits would send their incompetent and useless sons over to India to like get high posts while Indians had to do all the work. It's, it's not good that we don't know Arabic. And I, I started learning it because I was ashamed. I was like, how can I be working in these countries where there are all these amazing Arab journalists that speak English and Arabic and often like French or Kurdish or they often speak like four languages. And I'm sitting here getting paid this and I don't speak their language. Like, what am I doing here? It's it's messed up. And I would imagine that as an illustrator, 
um, as an art, a visual artist, that perhaps that would be a way in also towards establishing rapport in a way that having a camera might not be. I mean, I remember I was just at a talk by the graphic novelist Craig Thompson, and he said that when he was in Morocco, just having the sketch pad would often be an entryway into having discussions that he didn't think he would have in another way. Is that, do you, do you see that also as? Oh, absolutely. As, I mean, I've always used my sketch pad as a way to break the ice with people. I have done that since I was four, in like fourth grade when I was trying to get popular girls not to beat me up. So I draw their portraits. I got my job at the box by sitting around there sketching. I used to, when I was 17, uh, bumming around Morocco, I would just draw street kids and I would hang out with them. Drawing is always a novelty. It's always something that Maybe if it happens to you, you got it done once in your life on vacation with like a street artist. It's never something that people are inured to. Whereas I think, what is it now? Half the world has a camera phone. Like half of the, half of the globe has a camera phone. People mm. are used to having their photos taken. And worse, in many countries, people are used to tourists shoving cameras in their faces and non-consensually taking photos. I mean, it goes right in the language, right? You You take a photo, but you make a drawing. And also, when you're when you're drawing, right, people can see what you're doing. They can see if you're doing a good or bad job, and they can talk back to you. And if they don't like it, they can go away. And it just it's not that sort of extractive thing. And I want to say one more thing about Arabic too. So I started Arabic because because of this this shame that I told you, but I continued it because of love. I mean, I fell in love with Arabic as a literary language. I fell in love with this sort of elegance and tragedy and eloquence of poets like Mahmoud Darwish or Marut, who we, we read before, or Rashid Hussein. I fell in love with novelists like uh, Nawala Sadawi, the Egyptian feminist, or Sinan Antun, uh, amazing Iraqi novelist. And while my spoken Arabic is still pretty reprehensible, I can read and write Arabic, and I do all of my written work, you know, in Arabic, like my last piece from Afreen, I reported it based on a lot of WhatsApp conversations I did myself with people inside. And it's one of the things that I think has enriched my life more than anything else. And in fact, when I am trying to relax and when I think about what I would like to do if I didn't have to work for a living, part of me is like, I don't know, I just want to like hole up and read poems by like Andalusian courtesans and translate them and do cool drawings with them. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I hope you do that. I wanted to ask you about uh, being in these spaces, working in these regions as a woman. So there's this line in Brothers of the Gun that almost happens in passing about the Arab Spring that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read that I, th I found really interesting. We, we hibernated from our pitiful, pitiful present and gloried in satisfying glimpses of our past until in the last days of 2010, our regularly scheduled programming underwent a spectacular disruption. A guy set himself on fire in Tunisia. He'd been insulted by a policewoman. Would he have reacted differently were she a man? No matter, the spring had arrived. And I, I love that interesting, provocative speculation in its own right, but it also made me wonder how it goes for you. You have the advantage that you're, you're, you've learned Arabic, you have a sketch pad, both things that a lot of photojournalists in the region don't have um, to establish rapport. But what challenges, if any, have you faced um, in doing your work in these spaces as, as a woman? Honestly, people have been really good to me. I, a lot of people have been really protective to me. Uh, also, uh, one 
advantage of being a woman working in the Middle East is that there's a lot of uh, female-only spaces and a lot of really tough, strong older women who will look out for you. Mm. For instance, in a piece that I did about a year ago uh, where I reported from a refugee camp in Samos, which was off limits, the Greek government was not allowing people into that camp because it was reprehensible. The way that I got into it was that a wonderful lady from Aleppo smuggled me in through a hole in the fence. And then she uh, watched me like a hawk to make sure no guys treated me disrespectfully. And, you know, she's someone who I still talk to. And she brought me in a second time. And I mean, would that have been something that I would have done as a guy? Like, would uh, a young guy have felt as the same desire to help like a male journalist? I don't know. But I've definitely have had a lot of women that have done really amazing things for me. Um, I mean, obviously, you get sexual harassment in the Middle East, of course, uh, but you also get sexual harassment in New York, uh, and you also get sexual harassment a lot of other places, too. And I I don't know. I mean, I grew up, uh, I mean, I'm born in Farrakhoe in Queens, and while obviously I, you know, it sucks when people scream stuff at you on the street or whatever, that's just was my upbringing in New York, and it doesn't make me want to shrivel into a ball and die. Yeah. I would love to speak at least briefly about um, how you see the United States' role in in the war. So the Western powers enter Syria around the time you and Marwan meet on Twitter, and then he breaks the news of coalition airstrikes because he's there. Uh, And he he brings up, Marwan brings up this conundrum in his interview on Democracy Now!, uh, that on the one hand, almost all of the foreign intervention in the Syrian war has been destructive. And yet it's also hard to imagine a solution without these powers uh, now, uh, given the state of the, the state that Syria has been reduced to. So I was wondering if you could speak to how you would characterize our country's participation, both in the war and the, and the crisis. America's had a very destructive role. It has not had the most destructive role in the war. I mean, I think the most destructive parties in the war have been uh, the regime in Russia and Iran. And then I might follow that with Saudi Arabia and Qatar. And then maybe I would put like, and and Turkey, and then I might put America under that. But America's definitely had a destructive role. Um, One of the things that America did that's kind of interesting was it blocked anti-aircraft weapons to the rebels. Uh, And the reason for that is a reason that will make a lot of sense, which is that, um, People don't generally want non-governmental groups to have anti-aircraft guns because they can shoot up civilian planes. But it was also something that made uh, rebel areas into killing zones uh, by the Syrian government because the Syrian government had planes that would just carpet that would just uh, bomb areas with no uh, prospect of there being any retaliation. The American government also spent a lot of money on incredibly doomed to fail projects uh, with. Syrian rebel groups uh, without any sort of clear motivation. I think uh, the most enduring relationship that America has had is with um, the uh, YPG, YPJ, which are the Kurdish um, Kurdish leftist groups that uh, successfully, with America's help, kicked ISIS out of a lot of Syria uh, that America rebranded as the SDF, and, and they're currently the group in charge of Raqqa right now. America bombed so many civilians. America destroyed 90% of Raqqa. America destroyed Mosul's old city. America committed many, many war crimes. Tens of thousands of uh, civilians were killed by America. 
Now, there's, though, a narrative about America's involvement that I've always pushed back against. I do not believe that America's primary goal in this war has ever been a regime change, actually. I think that America fed just enough weapons to the rebels to keep people murdering each other. But one of the things Obama said was that actually in Syria, different groups that were opposed to America were all, in his words, I think, bleeding each other. And so it wasn't necessarily a problem for the war to keep going on. But I don't think that there's ever been a consistent American effort to overthrow Bashar al-Assad. And I think that one of the things that has always really frustrated me is that while there's been no consistent anti-war movement against the bombing of Raqqa that killed thousands and thousands of civilians and destroyed the whole city, every time Trump bombs empty military facilities, which is a ceremony he participates in once a year to look tough, uh, there's huge protests. And I wonder, I'm like, this just seems disproportionate. Uh, thousands of civilians murdered by American bombs versus empty facilities with no casualties. So, yeah, I would say that America has had one uh, destructive role. It also, one thing I always remember is in uh, 2013, I went to uh, Lebanon and I interviewed Syrian refugees that were living in unofficial camps in the Beqa Valley. And it was right after uh, the whole Obama red line thing. And first, a lot of refugees, they were really perplexed. They were like, oh, so gas is bad, but uh, burning us alive and cutting us into pieces with bombs is okay. That's nonsensical. But the other thing was that there was an intense uh, disappointment in America for what they viewed as making various uh, promises to um, protect them against the government bombing that America hadn't done. And I, I have always opposed American intervention because I don't think America has anything good to do in the Middle East or really almost any country it's ever uh, dealt with. But I think that America's appearance of promising something and then not doing it was something incredibly, incredibly, incredibly damaging. Hmm. Well, when Marwan risks his life to get these photographs out and yet also wonders if the photos will make any difference, uh, of course, this is a question of any artist who's who has political concerns, I think. And you, you raise this in Drawing Blood as well around your own art. And you bring up the critic Ben Davis, who who called Picasso's Guernica a heroic example of political art, but not because of what it portrayed, but, but because the price to see the painting was a pair of boots to be sent to the Spanish front. So the gallery collected 15,000 pairs of boots for the anti-fascists. Uh, I was hoping you could speak to this. So unlike the Spanish Civil War, the narrative in Syria is 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 bewildering, I, I think. Um, w do you feel like there's a way uh, to interface or what would you suggest is a way to interface as sort of an analog to sending boots to to uh, the anti-fascists in Spain? So we have if people are moved by reading Brothers of the Gun, have a, a better grasp now on on the complexity of the situation um, and want to translate that also into something in the world. Uh, I don't know if there's an answer to this, but if you had any thoughts, I think it would be uh, interesting to hear them. I would push back on one thing about the Spanish Civil War, and that's it not being bewildering. I think that Spain, in retrospect, has um, a very heroic gloss to it. But I think it's also important to note that by the end of it, you know, the Stalinist-backed forces were murdering Spanish anarchists and that countless 
very brave Spanish anarchists and leftists were murdered by their own side. You mm. know, um, this is something that Orwell talked a lot about. So while the fascists were unilaterally evil and repellent, the idea that the other side was unilaterally perfect and good, I might, I might push back on a bit. That's pretty important to say. But in terms of uh, what can be done for Syria and how we can help Syria, this is something that's very tragic to talk about because I everything that I would say is essentially a band-aid but I mean you know band-aid solutions are where people live right those are life those are life and death things uh, the first thing that I would say is do not give any money to the UNHCR or any other large NGO with except uh, doctors that borders who I've embedded with in Iraq and who are great but everyone else never let them get your money they're they're all a bunch of at worst, thieves, and at best, um, machines devoted to their own self-perpetuation. In camps, uh, NGOs are nicknamed Never Go Out because they never leave their air-conditioned offices. So save your money from those. I always suggest uh, giving to uh, local groups. Um, I work a lot with the Karam Foundation, which is a group run by an amazing Syrian-American woman named Lina Sergiatar that uh, works inside and outside Syria. And very importantly, they don't just do uh, survival work. They also have a really amazing youth center on the border that gives 100 girls and 100 boys uh, a safe place to like hang out and learn to use 3D printers and learn Turkish and read an awesome library that's filled with like Arabic translations of James Baldwin. You know, it's a really, really special and wonderful place. And they also, you know, fund schools inside Syria and feed people inside Syria and do emergency aid. Uh, there's also a squat in Athens that doesn't just have Syrians living there. It has, you know, Afghans and people from Eritrea, people from all over. It's called City Plaza and it takes donations. And it is a place where um, I want to say 500 refugees are living in an abandoned hotel with uh, dignity and self-organization and a really delicious kitchen that I've eaten at and a really fantastic Arab style coffee shop in it. I, I like I like them. Um, there in Lebanon, there's uh, Basam, uh, Basam and Zetuna. Um, I'm probably butchering the name, but my friends have worked with them. I haven't worked with them myself, but they're an amazing uh, Syrian led uh, group. But the other thing is I strongly believe and it's something I've always believed, but I believe it particularly now is I hate the idea that we live in a world where lives are more or less valuable based on what passport you hold and where people's capacity for self-determination is dependent on whether or not they have a good passport or not. So I always encourage people in the West to petition for open borders, not just, um, you know, in a poor refugee, you know, sympathy way, but as a right that we are all the heirs to this earth and we all have the right to move upon it. I also personally think that every country needs to stop interfering with Syria. I don't mean just America. I mean every country. I mean Iran. I mean Russia. I mean Turkey. I mean uh, Qatar. I mean Saudi. I mean all of the various rich people that are funding various things. I mean the Afghan militias. I mean the Iraqi militias. I mean every single group that is not Syrian needs to get out of Syria right now because that's part of what's uh, driving the war and allowing it to endlessly continue. It's um, 
that Syria is a battleground. I mean, Israel needs to get out of Syria. Like Everything needs to get out of Syria because right now it's become a place where every single uh, regional or global power has decided to fight out its own beefs over mountains of dead Syrian bodies, and it's it's disgusting. I, I wish I had like a more hopeful prognosis. Um, I wish that uh, I or anyone else was offering a solution that would take all of the war criminals in that in this terrible, terrible war and put them in front of international criminal court and that would give people their homes back and um, would release the detainees and would give a full pardon for all of those young men on the government wanted list. Um, I, that's what I, I wish would happen. But um, in terms of what you can actually do, those are some things I know. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, what about in terms of other books to potentially um, pivot toward. Uh, so if people have read uh, Brothers of the Gun and they're looking for uh, more literature uh, that engages with this conflict, um, what would you, where would you point them? Rania Abu Zayed's uh, No Turning Back to me is one of the best books on the Syrian war. It just spells out like what the protests were, how they became militarized. It follows the trajectory of people from various ideologies, everyone from people who kind of supported the government to peaceful media activists to uh, members of al-Qaeda. And it is a work of staggering courage that she did over six years. And really, I think it's one of the most essential uh, books I've read. Another book that's, it's not about the Syrian war, but it'll give you a crucial backdrop for why it got militarized the way it did is a book by a Syrian writer, uh, Mustafa Khalifa, which is called The Shell, which is his quasi-it's his quasi-fictionalized but ultimately true uh, memoir of how he, as a Syrian Christian atheist uh, returning to his country from studying at film school in Paris, uh, was arrested as a Muslim Brotherhood member and spent over a decade in jail uh, being horrifically tortured. And... No understanding of why this war has gone on so long is possibly complete without people realizing that the stakes of people who surrender to Assad or who go back is with some likelihood being tortured to death in jail. Um, there recently was an amazing article about uh, people who had um, were living in Europe and they were refugees in Europe and they had come back to Syria, you know, to care for aging parents or because they missed their country and were getting arrested. And then their bodies were, you know, their tortured bodies were getting found or else they were getting tortured and let out. And so when people want to talk about why the war went on so long, why people won't surrender, it's because of this prison industrial complex that Assad runs that contains some of the most brutal conditions on earth. I mean, the CIA even sent people to Syria to be tortured by under the Assad government. And maybe it's worth mentioning the dangers of um, the people on the left who seem to be supporting Assad. Maybe they're they're um, doing so out of this desire for a simple narrative. Assad's anti-American uh, or Assad is anti-ISIS, so we should support Assad. Can, can you speak a little bit to the, the dangers behind uh, I don't know how big that movement is within the left, but there seems to be some... It's vocal. That's It's very, yeah, very, very vocal. vocal movement within the left. I mean, it's disgusting. It's disgusting. I think that the primary reason that one shouldn't do that is it's just 
it's like spitting on all of the victims of Assad. It would be like if the only way that you could oppose the invasion of Iraq, which is obviously something I certainly spent a lot of time protesting, was by saying that no Kurds were actually gassed in Halabja and that the Anfal campaign was totally peachy and that no communists were ever killed. I mean, that's just not what you do as a thinking, sane person. You don't oppose war by uh, denying uh, atrocities or by denying war crimes or by spitting on refugees. That's that's the philosophical reason. The practical reason, there are two practical reasons that you don't do this. Uh, the first I alluded to before, which is that if you set up a narrative where it's all right to bomb and kill people because there is al-Qaeda in their area or because you view them as Muslim fundamentalists, that's the entire narrative of the war on terror. That's how we ended up with Guantanamo Bay. That's how we ended up with this war in Afghanistan that I think is entering its 16th year right now. Uh, that's how we end up bombing a Dakshat Borders uh, facility and saying that we thought it was Taliban. It's the justification of war crimes by saying that they're being done under, that they're being done in a fight against uh, Islamic fundamentalism. And I truly believe that the reason there was not an anti-war movement against the actual crimes that America did in Syria and in Iraq recently is because that portion of the left has spent so long saying that it was all right for Assad to bomb areas because there were Muslim fundamentalists in them that it couldn't actually argue against America bombing areas that were being uh, occupied by ISIS. That's reason number two. Reason number three is that there's a movement right now in Europe, which is a place, remember, where over a million Syrian refugees live, by the far right to whitewash Assad. Uh, alternative, for alternative for Deutschland, uh, they just went to Syria and met with the Assad government in an effort to prove that Syria is safe. And every single far right party in Syria, from uh, the National Front in France to the Golden Dawn, to Alternative for Deutschland, every single one of them supports Assad. And the reason that they support Assad is that they want to uh, create a picture where, okay, the war with ISIS is wrapped up, so uh, we can deport all of these Syrians back to Assad because he's a secular good leader and it's totally safe. But as I said, this is deporting people back to their deaths. And I think that when people on the left play into this narrative that's really being primarily advanced by the far right. They are aiding with a project that will have disastrous consequences for refugees. Hmm. Well, maybe as, as a way to end, I mean, what's really interesting about the way you've spoken about your collaboration with Marwan, that he was very instrumental to the drawings that you made. And you were very instrumental to the telling of, of his story in, in text and language. And then looking at when you're both asked about which books or music you, you would connect to the, to the, this project, um, you pick mostly non-Western writers and he picks mostly Western writers. Like he mentions Atwood's Handmaid's Tale and Hannah Arendt's Eichmann in Jerusalem and George Orwell's homage to Catalonia. Um, Maybe we can end with uh, a little section on page 290 to 292. That's a, just a dramatization, I think, of the courage of him uh, smuggling out the photos. January 2016. The last month. The worst month. My Times and Foreign Policy articles are about to be published. The tension stretches painfully between the iPhone screen, the room, and the world. It's not funny anymore. 
ISIS is obsessed with spies. They released three videos of executions of men they claimed were spies, found guilty of sending pictures of fighters' headquarters through hidden cameras or receiving money from abroad to open internet cafes. The videos were all the same. Orange jumpsuits, torture-induced, quote-unquote, confessions, bullets through the brains in Rashid Park. I erase every message I send, and the memories vanish with them. Two Daesh guys walk into the cafe. They're laughing about the dirty pigs whom their colleagues had shot against Rashid Park's palm trees. I sign out of everything, then listen without looking. It would be too suspicious to look. One Tunisian fighter chuckles. We're catching a lot of spies lately in cafes. They get what they deserve. I sit with my phone shielded by a veil of coat, surrounded by fighters, potential ISIS spies, and potential ISIS victims who need to watch every word they send and receive for anything that might offend the brothers. Otherwise, this so-called internet cafe will be the last place their eyes see in the sunlit world. I am caught, I think. They're talking about me. I am the pig, the spy, the kafir. I am everything they hate. I've been lucky for years. More than once, my phone was searched, and it was only the idiocy of the brothers who detained me that saved me. I survived, didn't I? I'm still alive. I still see sunlight. The blood is still rushing through my veins. I am still sharp enough to imagine in every ISIS bro's dumb eyes the demon who will catch me. I, who am here for no reason, with no one to blame but myself if I am caught. I thought I could establish myself in Turkey that last time, that I could work, that my money would stretch until I found a job. It went that way in my mind, but plans are different from reality. The money disappeared. I tried to find work in factories, but it's not life anyway, sweating your years away for one third of what a Turk gets paid, and maybe you lose your fingers to a machine and end up with nothing. The path between Ankara and Raqqa had been my thread of safety. I knew I could be back in 44 hours, and at least here, even if this journalism thing didn't work, I wouldn't have to ask anyone for anything. I could keep my head up. That's what I thought. The blood was so loud in my ears. They won't just kill me. They'll kill my family, my friends, anyone who had been in contact with me, these decent people whom I had betrayed by working undercover, milking their stories, pretending I was like them, all dead because of me. I'm too careless, I think. This is not a joke anymore, nor is Raqqa the city it once was. Five minutes pass. The Tunisian guys shush, then start browsing their phones. I stand and walk to the counter. Each step thunders. They will hear them. I force my right foot forward and then my left. I will fall and they will see. The air presses down on me, so harsh my back will snap. I hand the slip of paper to the guy at the counter. It shows my username and password so he can delete my account and thus prevent me from checking my phone outside the cafe and away from ISIS eyes. Assalamu alaikum, I say. Wa alaikum assalam, he answers. He smiles as if with recognition. This is normal, I tell myself. I'm in here every day. No, this is not normal. See how he's looking at me? He has memorized me. He suspects me. I have to leave as soon as I can. I have to leave today. I have to leave this fucking hour. It's dark outside. I edge past the motorcycles, into the narrow street that leads to my house. The asphalt has eroded to reveal dirt made into mud by the winter rains. 
Two ISIS cars pass. I walk for 15 minutes, numb with fear. When I open the door to my parents' apartment, then fall onto the bed, a great luxury fills me. A concerto played with nerves, lymph, tendons, brain. I outwitted them, I tell myself. I did the job and then left safely. They will never catch me. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Molly. Thank you so much, and I, I just wish Marwan could be here with me. Yeah, me too. We've been listening to Molly Crabapple, the co-author of Brothers of the Gun, Memoirs of the Syrian War. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. More of Molly Crabapple's work can be found at mollycrabapple.com. Marwan Hisham can be found on Twitter at the Twitter handle Marwan Hisham Pen. Molly also is adding a reading to the Patreon bonus archive, a piece called No Victor But God, which arose from her return to hurricane-devastated Puerto Rico as a Puerto Rican-American herself, and finding unlikely historical links between the island and Syria. This joins readings by Carmen Maria Machado, Vicky Now, Therese Marie Myatt, and others. The bonus archive, the video of Marwan Hisham and Molly Crabapple, and the links to the organizations in Syria, Lebanon, and Greece that Molly recommends can all be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog a Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.